Welcome to the Canna Curio podcast powered by Cannabis Media. I'm Amanda Guerrero, joined by my lovely co-host, Ed Keating. Ed, say hello. Hey there. <laughs> hey, Ed. Uh, we're so excited to bring a very special episode of Canna Curio to you guys uh, today. Uh, we'll actually be... Uh, Moving away from our traditional format, uh, we're going to skip the data highlights today and dive right into our very special interview. Uh, today, we are joined by the Chief Operating Officer at Metric, Lewis Koski. Uh, Lewis is someone that uh, if you've worked within the Colorado market, if you've worked pretty much within most legal markets, uh, you should be somewhat familiar with Lewis and his team uh, at Metric. But uh, without further ado, I'd love to welcome uh, Lewis to, to our, our stage here. Welcome, Lewis. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Ed. Appreciate it. Really looking forward to having the conversation with you. Yeah, we are so excited to have you on the show. Um, I can say this candidly. When we first started Candy Curio, Metric was one of our top guests that we were like, yes, we want to get them on the show. We want to have a conversation. So we're just uh, so grateful to have you join us today, Lewis. Yeah, well, we're honored. So thanks for having us. Of course. Um, so Metric, Franwell, you guys have been providing supply chain solutions since 1993. Um, mm -hmm. What industries did the company get started with and how did you settle on cannabis? Well, the, you're right. The company started in 1993 and it was founded down in uh, Florida, just uh, outside of Tampa in a small city uh, named Plant City. Um, uh, which is probably known more for its strawberries than it is for its plants, especially this time of year. In fact, uh, just this morning, I had a bowl of fresh strawberry season here at the peak of strawberry season, uh, just before we're about to have our strawberry festival down here, which will be somewhat truncated, I think, because of COVID. But uh, um, uh, it's, a, it's a kind of a heavily, uh, it's a heavy agricultural area here in Florida. There's a lot of different uh, crops. And Franwell, when it was founded in the early 90s, was really focused on supply chain solutions that serve the agricultural community. And so I, I wouldn't say that the company had an intent uh, uh, at, the, at the early years of getting into the cannabis industry. It just had spent so much time from the early 90s um, all the way till you know, roughly 2010 honing their skills, uh, tracking uh, agricultural product and, and tracking agricultural product. Um, and, and offering supply chain solutions. When uh, the cannabis opportunity came up, it was something that they saw as kind of an ancillary opportunity to, to help with the business. Um, and so in 2010, it became the, you know, the, the contractor in Colorado to provide the track and trace solution uh, to monitor every cannabis plant and all the packages that were created from that um, uh, in that particular uh, regulated environment. Uh, so uh, they, uh, they uh, won that contract. And then just a couple years later, they uh, picked up a number of other contracts. And by the time 2018 came along, Metric, uh, the product became Metric, the company. Um, and, and so uh, uh, Metric was formed in 2018 uh, into 2019 uh, after uh, um, uh, a, uh, they raised some capital through some capital partners, Tiger Global uh, and Casa Verde. Um, and so it's been a pretty incredible run on the, on the cannabis side of the business in so much as that it's probably become the most predominant uh, um, area that we're uh, currently operating in. So when Metric came to Colorado, that's kind of where your engagement or your interaction with them came into play, correct? That's correct. Yeah, I was yeah. a uh, I was a 
um, uh, 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 spent a career in law enforcement uh, and as a regulator in Colorado and a number of different heavily regulated industries. Um, and so that's kind of where I was positioned um, uh, as cannabis legalization, or at least like the, the licensing of the commercial side in 2010 started to come into, uh, into play. Very cool. Very cool. Um, and now looking at, you know, today's February 9th, 2021, uh, looking at metric, how many states do you guys cover now? And can you describe a little bit about, you know, what you guys do within each of those markets? Yeah, so we are currently uh, in uh, 15 states plus DC. Um, and we cover most of the large adult use cannabis states um, uh, for seed to sale offerings. Uh, so just to maybe go a little bit in depth into uh, what our system is and what it does. So if you picture yourself uh, going to uh, a restaurant and ordering a salad um, and uh, you uh, get that salad and different from what it's really like today, you actually know that the, that the, the product that's on that salad has been tracked from um, its origins um, all the way through testing, um, it's been monitored while it was transported to make sure that that was done correctly and on time. Um, and it was received by um, people at the managers at the restaurant who accepted uh, that product, knowing that it had gone through all of these processes. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I still get a little nervous uh, eating, eating lettuce because it's not uncommon for there to be um, a number of different recalls. And because they don't really know where the product origins are, um, uh, it's always hard to do the, 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 the like a more um, surgical uh, um, recall of the product. So um, our system has really kind of helped to do a number of different things, but not the least of which is, is create a lot of confidence in the, the regulated framework, knowing that the, the product had gone through certain milestones on its way to becoming a, a consumer product that someone was going to, to consume, right? So um, our system is really good at being able to help track that and, and, and give people a sense of, of confidence when the, um, the product makes it out to the consumer. So the way the system works is we're kind of think of us a really sophisticated centralized database that um, licensees and the regulated community report all of their uh, product into not just the product itself, but when it um, where, where it originated from how long it was in a vegetative state, how long it was in a flowering state, um, when it was harvested. Um, when it was tested, all those things are captured when the licensees report that information into the system all the way until it becomes uh, a product that is ready for uh, a consumer to purchase. So between the, the, you know, the, the, uh, the, the call sign for what we do is what seed to sale tracking in between seed to sale tracking, we, we collect uh, upwards of 370 different unique events um, in the supply chain uh, that then the state agency has complete visibility into so that they can monitor for compliance. Uh, they can do targeted recalls if there's something wrong with the product um, that uh, could affect public health or, or compliance issues. Um, and, and, it's, and it gives uh, them a clear view into what's happening in the industry um, so that they can uh, monitor and regulate efficiently. So licensees have an efficient ways to, to be able to report into the state and the state has efficient ways to be able to pull it out. So 
over the last few years, we've become you know, the most trusted and experienced uh, track and trace system in the world. Um, and, we're, and we're looking forward to what the future brings on that. Uh, there's 16 states and, uh, or I'm sorry, 15 states in uh, DC. Um, to kind of put that into perspective, there's over 150,000 users uh, in the system. Um, and there's you know, thousands of different businesses uh, that report into the system on a, on a daily basis. Wow. So one of the things that I learned in reviewing Metric was that your system has handled over a billion events tracked in Metric, which is just remarkable. And, and I'm curious, you know, how do state policies impact, impact that? Like, you know, and how much do you Metric impact that? Because I would imagine when a, a state brings you on board, one of the reasons they chose you is this is not your first rodeo. It's going to be your 17th is going to be the next one. So, you know, how does that interplay work between what the regulators are looking for and what you already bring to the table, having done this successfully many times? Yeah, well, so the billion events that uh, um, that you read about is, is a pretty staggering number. Um, and the likelihood is that that number is significantly higher uh, than when we last uh, um, calculated that in so much as that. 2020, there was a, a tremendous surge in use of, of metric um, uh, during the during the uh, pandemic. So we know that number to be greater. Um, you know, kind of the relationship with us and in, in state policy is is uh, pretty well established. For one, state policy on this still remains really dynamic. Uh, so there's constantly a lot of changes. Remember earlier, I talked about 370 events. Well, back in 2014 in Colorado, we probably weren't tracking that many. We're tracking a lot more events now because as state policy has continued to evolve and develop, metrics had to keep pace with that. Um, and, and so um, those 370 events have kind of increased over time as states have added uh, uh, delivery services or on-site consumption or various other things that are unique to the jurisdictions, we've continued to add all that into the functionality of our system. And the great news on that is, is as we continue to work with new states, whether it's a, a really big state like California or a smaller program like we have um, in Louisiana, the size of the program really doesn't matter as much because we're able to, to leverage all of those experiences and all of the additional functionality we put in the system to help new states get off the ground and up and running on their product accountability system um, you know, in a relatively short period of time. In fact, we've done it um, in as early as, or as, as quickly as two months uh, uh, where we were ready to go, for example, in Maine. And then a couple of years previous to that, we were able to do that in Nevada. So, so we, we, we come from the perspective that policy is gonna remain dynamic on this. We have to keep up with that policy um, with new functionality into the system. And, and even though that's sometimes a challenge to do based on the, the timeframes that legislatures give you, um, we, we, we know that at some point in the future, that could become a best practice that will really help um, another program that's adopting more permissive cannabis policy down the line. I would say that any of those regulations changing are really merely business rules that you have to figure out how to you know, wind their way in or beat their way into the system so that uh, so that it, it works out. Because as we've seen, if it happens in one state, somebody else is likely to adopt, you know, these rules and regulations or the, or the next uh, state 
Might. So speaking of states, um, over the last couple of years, one of the states that we've tracked a lot and our customers have is Oklahoma. They've generated so many licenses. Um, and I know that they're one of the um, new upcoming states that um, you're going to be bringing on. I'm just curious sort of you know, what that process is, is like of bringing on, whether it be Oklahoma or any state, like how does that process work and, and, and what is it like for the, the regulator as well as the, the license holders who have to interact with, uh, with the new system? So, so uh, um, I mentioned a couple of times that we're in 16 different jurisdictions. So we've got a lot of reps in implementing our system and we bring with it all of these uh, these uh, areas of functionality that we've developed over the time. Um, so it's, it's really more about when we first get in, really taking a deep dive and continuing to more understand more fully uh, the public policy that's in place that will have an impact on what functionality is going to be necessary in the system. So we spend a lot of time understanding uh, what that is and also to how agencies are interpreting a lot of the the content that's both in the law and in, in the regulations. Um, and, and by doing that, we're able to really understand uh, what functionality is existing and off the shelf for metric that we can get configured relatively rapidly. Um, and then if there's any new development needs that they need. So really working closely with the regulator and make sure that we take advantage of everything that's in the system and identifying areas where it might take a little bit more work uh, to, uh, to fully customize it to, to the state's needs. So that's kind of on the, the state side of things. So we work very closely with them um, to get all that done. Uh, on the other side of it too, there's there's uh, um, our, we're kind of known for our technology, um, uh, but uh, we're also known for having some really incredible teams. And um, one area that we that we really um, uh, developed and kind of honed over the years is that initial socialization and training in the system to get companies uh, on ramped, sometimes from an unregulated environment into a regulated environment or um, from a cold start uh, into a heavily regulated environment, um, get them into that system as seamlessly as possible. And we do that in a number of different ways. We're, we're, we're uh, uh, almost always doing roadshows that were in person, now done via webinar uh, during the, the COVID pandemic. Um, but we do a, a number of roadshows kind of to demystify um, what it's going to be like to report into this system um, some of the, the advantages of using the system, uh, the, the openness of our API and the ability to continue to use the systems you have. A lot of work is done to just kind of take the edge off and, and really demystify the system for uh, licensees that are going to be using it. And then um, on top of that, we do uh, some initial training with licensees uh, that, they're, that they're required to take so that they can uh, get credentialed and start using the system once the state's ready for them to uh, be licensed and uh, and and start uh, participating in the regulated environment. Lewis, is there much difference if you roll it out into a, a state that, let's say, is maybe limited license, where there's only you know a few handfuls of license holders versus others, or is it just it's a set of rules and and you know it's it's something that a lot of the similarities from implementation are going to be the same, whether it's for one or a thousand people. Uh, well, so ju the, just by virtue of having more licensees on board creates the need for us to do more work in terms of training and credentialing and making sure that uh, um, we have enough of those services available for a larger licensee base versus a smaller licensee base. 
Um, but when it comes down to it, um, the, the, that's a kind of an area of public policy. We just haven't gotten all that involved in uh, because it doesn't relate directly to uh, the seed to sale uh, side of things. Now, we do know that um, when it comes to uh, limited licenses, there's advantages to that. Sometimes it's a little easier um, writ large, not just seed to sale tracking for, for regulators to get that, that type of regulated environment off the ground and, and operational just because of the limited numbers. Um, but we've also seen some disadvantages there too, where a lot of times those licenses become so competitive that um, there's also uh, oftentimes litigation that, that follows uh, licensing decisions. Um, and also, too, we've noticed that, you know, that ends up being a lot of the bigger companies, right? And so um, that limits then small businesses. And I'm sure you all are aware with uh, all the work that you've been doing in the cannabis industry that, that so social equity, inclusion of uh, minority communities in the, in the industry is a top priority for almost everybody that's involved in, in the system. And so limited licenses can, can have an impact on that. You know, conversely, you know, when you when you open up um, licenses, then you ended up with a large number of, of licenses and it can add a little bit more time to getting things off the ground um, and implemented. It could also um, make it a little bit more challenging for regulators to have to um, uh, monitor that many licenses. Uh, but like I said, too, you know, in comparison to limited licensing jurisdictions, uh, it seems to open up uh, a number of, uh, of other opportunities for small businesses to participate in the, in the licensed community. So sort of digging into the special situations, uh, I noticed that I think there's one hemp implementation you have in Colorado. I, I wonder, do you see any more coming in the hemp side? And also international, do other countries want to replicate this or, or do you think what you have is sort of uniquely for the U.S. regulatory system? Yeah, so um, uh, first I'll, I'll kind of address the, the hemp piece of that. Um, we do see uh, uh, a lot of potential for um, a track and trace uh, um, implementation in the hemp industry and we probably will see more of that coming down the line. Um, I think, you know, part of the, the, the reason we believe that is, is that to most people, um, hemp and cannabis are somewhat indistinguishable from one another when you see them uh, um, together. So if you move hemp, you know, especially if there's going to be any form of interstate commerce uh, um, uh, really solidifying, which I think to a large extent already exists, there will be, a, I think, incentive for uh, hemp regulators and hemp industry uh, to take a second look at, at being able to use the, the verification and the credibility and the, the confidence that comes from uh, tracking um, uh, agricultural products and finished consumer products um, and a little bit more uh, um, confidence in being able to move that in, in, in interstate um, or between states. Um, and give law enforcement a, a view inside of, of the regulated market. So on the hemp side of things, we certainly see um, some opportunities, whether or not it's gonna be exactly analogous to cannabis or not. Um, we, we don't know that for sure, but uh, we think that there'll be some, some developments in that over the, the coming years. Um, I would also say too, uh, um, I think that the vape crisis that we had uh, late 2019 coming into 2020, really highlights the importance of 
of being able to track a consumable product or something that you inhale um, all the way back to its origins. I mean, even till even you know to this day, we really don't know for sure um, if it was widespread problems or if it was a few large uh, but fewer actors that um, that were responsible for a lot of the the problems that we saw during the vape crisis. Um, and so, uh, since uh, CBD product is a consumable product by consumers. Um, and especially given some of the, the concerns that we still have around the, the, the vaping crisis, uh, you might see uh, just from a consumer protection, public health and safety standpoint, more interest in the hemp industry, um, adopting some of those best practices that have been proven successful and efficient in the cannabis industry. So that's, that's kind of the, the hemp side of it. And then I think you asked too, second was international jurisdiction said? Right, yep. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think uh, to a large extent, Track and Trace has been um, uh, uh, accepted across the boards in the U.S. And I think um, international jurisdictions have been a little bit slower, but we're starting to see um, a, a lot of interest international in being able to leverage some of the benefits of Track and Trace like we've seen in the U.S. Um, now, they may have a little bit different focus. So our focus was originally on um, limiting inversion and diversion of cannabis in and out of the regulated environment or unlawfully between the two um, environments. Um, but I think there's a lot of other opportunities. Um, again, tracking product back to its origin all, to, all the way till it's a finished product ready for consumers has a lot of benefits, whether it's uh, um, research or, or uh, security of the product or, or other things. So I think, I think international jurisdictions are certainly starting to take notice of that. We've seen some movement for sure in the Caribbean. Um, and uh, we've also seen, uh, I think Netherlands has their own uh, track and trace system that they've, they've produced in-house. So I think, uh, I think you'll see that demand for it continue to uh, um, kind of surge outside of the U.S. because the, the benefits are just too, uh, too good to ignore. Uh, and do you see any like potential partnerships or like countries that you guys are, are uh, potentially good, looking to work with in the future um, in terms of uh, identifying and adopting a, a track and trace system? Yeah, I mean, so, so like I mentioned earlier, we're seeing some movement down in the Caribbean. I think, uh, um, you know, we've been doing quite a bit of outreach on our own too, uh, out to a number of jurisdictions outside of the U.S., um, you know, so I think, you know, as that continues to develop and it gets a little bit more firm, we'll know for sure when we start to see um, uh, uh, countries uh, putting out proposals or bids uh, to, to procure the system. But like I said, it, it seems really clear to us that, um, uh, and, and to a lot of other people too, that the, the benefits of the track and trace system um, uh, are, are, are just so positive that they could get a lot of uh, a benefit from being able to uh, adopt those types of systems. So, and, and Lewis, you've sort of touched on this a bit. It seems that the states can get a lot out of a system like this. You gave a couple of examples of helping with recalls, compliance. I also heard uh, one of the states talk about they like the benefit of having this as a way of uh, they think managing the black market. Is that a common uh, use case or, or benefit that states cite when they're like, yeah, we need to get this in place, you know, help us do it quickly? Yeah, I think probably one of the best ways is kind of discuss a little bit of how seed to sale has evolved over time. So I remember when we were first implementing seed to sale in Colorado and I was still in office as the director of the Marijuana Enforcement Division. Um, 
uh, um, prominent in our thinking was creating a credible regulated framework on paper and in practice. And the reason for that was is the federal government was kind of uh, um, out there with a little bit of guidance to the coal memo that said, hey, if you meet this criteria, we won't make you an enforcement priority. Um, so we were really taking our role seriously. And, and, and a lot of that, the, the criteria that was in the coal memo was related to diversion of cannabis out of the regulated environment into uh, the criminal market or the uh, unregulated environment. So we took that responsible responsibility very seriously. And so I would say that the initial focus, and I think as new states come on board, they're also still you know, focused on that as a, as a top priority. Uh, they're focused on, on, uh, on the regulated environment being uh, regulated well enough uh, that you do not see widespread uh, diversion of cannabis out of the regulated environment, or you don't create a conduit for illegal cannabis to come into the regulated market. So that was early on like a top priority for those reasons. It still continues to be a, a top priority, but we've just learned so much more about how to be, how to use um, the system uh, to, uh, to, to help make government even more successful than we were just in that particular aspect. So I mentioned a couple of these before, but it's worth noting again um, that, that the, the data out of the system is used to protect public health and safety, and it's done um, in a very efficient, kind of almost business-friendly way in so much as that um, we could put um, an entire uh, facilities product on hold um, if we were concerned about the, the uh, compliance or, or something that was going on there that could really um, offend uh, criminal justices or be like a criminal, a criminal offense or uh, if it was something that was really violating the regulations, we could do that. But also we could, we could um, uh, uh, narrow down a recall or putting product on hold to a very narrow portion of product that was uh, within uh, a facility's um, uh, inventory levels. So there's a lot of a lot of flexibility that the system gives government when it comes to protecting public health and safety. Uh, broad recalls on product and everything that's in the supply chain prior to point of sale can be put on on hold if necessary, and also like one batch of product could also be put on hold. It's very, very helpful to be that granular, um, not just for the regulator, but it also helps businesses as well. Kind of going back to the vape crisis, if we would have had something like that systemically um, uh, in, the, in the vaping industry, we probably would have been able to narrow down the offenders much, much quicker um, and, uh, and prevent that widespread uh, damage to that portion of the industry. So- no, Absolutely. I'm sorry, go ahead, Ed. No, I was going to say, absolutely. The, the point I, I wanted to make that came to me as you were speaking was the other benefit about managing the black market is um, they pay no taxes and uh, the state certainly want to get that revenue back to them. So uh, it makes a, a, a lot of sense, you know, as just a public policy benefit, I think that comes back to these states. Yeah, and, and there's a lot of states that use the data that's in metric for that purpose. Uh, you can take a, a licensees or a businesses tax returns and what they report to the state and how they pay taxes. You can overlay that with some of or a lot of the data that's in the metric system uh, as a way of being able to verify um, that uh, uh, what they had on hand uh, was actually reported accurately. And, and we see that in a lot of different ways, not just taxes, but um, there's a lot of opportunity there for government to be able to use the data that's in the system uh, to inform policy um, going forward. 
So we've talked a lot about some of the benefits that uh, states can have when working with metric and working with your team, uh, Lewis, but I'm curious, like what kind of challenges do you guys face when implementing, uh, you know, your, your product and, you know, educating these markets, especially when some of these license holders don't even know the importance of seed to sale or aren't coming from, from that sector. Yeah. Well, I, I think, um, I think we have a little bit different perspective than most people do. I mean, metric was designed to address challenges that government was going to face regulating cannabis, right? So we were, we were focused as a company, we were focused on being able to help government be successful with regulating it. And there's a lot of challenges to that. So, so make no mistake about it. I mean, the government uh, agencies that we partner with, um, they're doing an amazing job. In fact, I've been really impressed with, you know, especially after um, leaving Colorado and working with some other states as a consultant and then coming to metric, been really impressed with how dedicated the regulators are uh, to leveraging tools like metric uh, to, um, to be successful in monitoring uh, licensees for compliance. So we, we look at the challenges as part of our role in this and being able to address some of those. So given our position in the industry, we look uh, for challenges and we look at them as opportunities to continue and uh, evolve the system. I, I mentioned it before, um, we've, we've, we've you know, tackled some pretty challenging public policy changes um, that have, uh, that have kind of like uh, um, changed our way of thinking, at least from originally on how uh, track and chase could be best used and then be able to expand it beyond that, that, that wholesale tier into delivery and um, more robust testing and, and, and a number of different things. So we have, a, we, have a, we have a really strong history of being able to keep up with those. So I think, again, we look at challenges a little differently and we kind of carved a, a niche for ourselves uh, in the industry by kind of taking those challenges uh, uh, and those, uh, those challenges on as opportunities and, 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 and really evolving the system. So one area that I wanted to find out more about, and it's one that I've studied a lot, is looking at the ecosystem of all the companies that connect to metric. I think by my count, there's I think over 300 now, and, and they run the gamut. They're seat to sale, their point of sale, their grow software, delivery, et cetera. So I'm curious from, from metrics uh, side of things, you know, what kind of training and support do they need? And, and you know, how do you work with them? Because they're obviously an important part of uh, what makes you successful, I would think. Yeah, well, you're, you're absolutely correct. Um, they are, are um, they are very important to the entirety of the ecosystem. And, and just, just like to kind of set the stage here, in, in every state that we operate in, um, we offer an open API um, for other systems that licensees use uh, to integrate into metrics so that they can send data into metric and pull data um, out of metric and keep things reconciled between the two. Um, this is uh, the centralized system, which is metric, is what the, the regulator looks into um, uh, to, 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 do, to um, uh, monitor and, and, to, and, to, and to audit and to investigate. Um, licensees can actually, in, in many ways, be able to use some of the third-party integrators that you mentioned, Ed, um, uh, and not have to do dual entry into metric, and they can do it through an API or also CSV upload. So just kind of, that's how we, how the, how those businesses that you mentioned interact with metric, it's through the API. 
originally, um, again, kind of going back and you know, kind of uh, discussing a little bit some of my experience around the API, originally it was just uh, to uh, eliminate dual entry between a point of sale system or another like ERP type system, um, dual entry in those systems and in metric. We were really concerned, I remember as a regulator at the time, uh, that uh, that type of dual entry would lead to uh, less accurate data in the system that we were reviewing. So the API has really been able to help that. And we started with, you know, probably a half a dozen or a dozen different integrators back then. And you're right, there's literally hundreds of, uh, of different companies that integrate through the API um, with metric. And over time, the needs have certainly gotten to be more than just uh, eliminating dual entry for the licensees. They're trying to create a number of different uh, efficiencies for their customers. And we have a lot of, uh, of opportunities to, to kind of share in each other's success by continuing to uh, expand and, and evolve the uh, API program. You know, to that end, you know, most of 2020 and coming now into 2021, we've done a lot of outreach with the third-party integrator community. Initially, it was because our we had the intention of, of implementing rate limiting through the API. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that, but in, in talking with the, the third-party integrator community, we learned a lot more about other things that they have an interest in us continuing to expand and evolve that as maybe even a separate product uh, for, for the company. So um, real quick on rate limiting. So uh, 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 I'm, I'm not uh, uh, going to give you a, 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 like a real detailed technical explanation of it, but um, if you do not have rate limiting through your API, chances are good one integrator could potentially um, make so many calls into the system that it could slow down the system at the API level, making it hard for other third-party integrators to communicate with metric. Um, so during 2020, we implemented uh, two phases of a three-phase rate limiting project where we started limiting the number of calls that the third-party integrators could make into the system. And it's had a, a real positive impact on the performance of the API uh, level of our system and ultimately the, the performance uh, at the user interface where licensees use it. And again, during that time, and we had an opportunity to work with uh, the third-party integrator community and we've, uh, we've kind of started creating a, a, a list of things that we're going to be working with them on to improve the level of technical support, um, uh, finding new ways for us to share in each other's success, um, better communication when we move uh, development work into the production environment so they have the tools that they need um, to uh, effectively test uh, changes to their integration. There's just uh, a number of different things that we've been able to learn from them. And um, you know, I, I reflect back on my time in Colorado, part of what made Colorado a, a, a successful regulated environment is not just a willingness to engage with other stakeholders, but understanding that's actually essential. And so we've applied some of that um, level of, uh, of, uh, of uh, interest in uh, the third-party integrator community. And we've been doing a lot of work with them uh, to better understand their needs. Well, thank you uh, so much for uh, that really detailed insight into uh, the relationships. Um, I know that's something that Ed and I have looked into, primarily Ed, uh, I'll give him the credit there, but um, especially when looking at the, the software stack and you know which uh, groups fit in with metric, uh, we have been able to, to observe that um, over the last few years. Um, now, looking into the future here, we've got a lot of activity coming in for new markets within the cannabis space, hemp license is growing. What's 
that's next for metric and, and what are you go what do you what do we have to look forward from uh from you guys yeah well you know i, I think uh um 2020 um was a really good year for the industry in so much as that uh it was deemed essential during the pandemic one of the side effects to that was though that um, as state legislatures were uh, kind of grappling with some of the challenges of the COVID pandemic, uh, 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 cannabis legalization fell off the policymaking agenda, right? And, and, and so now this year, uh, post-election, we know um, who the new administration is. They're in place. Um, they're uh, During the same election cycle, five new states uh, adopted uh, more permissive cannabis policy and expanded um, or, or, uh, or created new um, uh, markets for cannabis legalization. We're already seeing a lot of activity in other states um, in their legislatures uh, looking to adopt legalization policy. Just yesterday, I think I heard something about Wisconsin uh, and the Wisconsin governor uh, uh, making that a top priority. So we're going to still, it's not just going to be the five states um, that, that uh, resolve some of it at, during the election cycle. There's going to be more work that's done at the legislature. So 2021 going into 2022 promises to be, you know, I think a couple of years of expansion. And then also, too, you know, there's uh, um, some potential for some incremental change at the, the federal level, too, over the next couple of years. So I guess well, I'm, all that is to say we expect more jurisdictions uh, to come online with legalization frameworks. And as those jurisdictions come online, uh, we certainly have an interest in being able to partner with them like we have 16 other jurisdictions uh, around the country. So I think that's number one. I think, uh, uh, you know, number two, since we are, I think, the most trusted track and trace system in the country, and I think we're best positioned and, and not just because we have a, a system that works really well, but also, too, we have teams now that have been involved in a dozen or more um, implementations or a dozen or more um, evolutions of cannabis policy across the country. And so um, as, as we continue to, to grow our, our footprint with our core product, we also see an opportunity for us to expand some of the service offerings that we have to continually make that um, a, a, a better option for uh, the, uh, the regulators and the, the licensee community. So we see um, opportunities in the area of uh, more robust and, and uh, systematized training opportunities. Uh, we see opportunities for uh, more robust reporting and visualization of the data um, and a number of different other areas that we see uh, going into the future. You know, and I think you know, the, our recipe for success is to do uh, a, a, a world-class track and trace system and do it very, very well. Um, and we've, we're really established in that area. And so now I think there's some, some opportunity for us to be able to expand that service offering and, and, and continue to make it um, uh, as, as a, uh, more and more effective as the, uh, the uh, cannabis legalization frameworks continue to evolve. Do you have any uh, new market predictions that you want to lay on us here on the, the Canna Curio show? Oh, everybody likes the predictions. Uh, I, I would bet. So um, I don't know that I have any state-specific predictions, but I think kind of similar to what I was talking about before, I think you're absolutely going to see more conversation um, at the federal level about uh, cannabis and whether that's uh, more focused on social justice or reparation or restorative justice of some form. 
um, or if it's uh, focused more on what uh, uh, a uh, nationalized legalization would look like and the impact it would have on the commercial market, I definitely think we'll see a lot more conversation there um, and maybe even some movement in that area over the next year or two. Uh, um, so I think that's that's one uh, prediction. Um, uh, maybe on another uh, another time, we can talk a little bit more about the pros and cons of such an approach. Um, and then um, I think too, you're going to see probably close to as many states, if not more, uh, uh, pass legislation this year um, that that um, uh, you can see just as many of those as you did see, you know, the, the five uh, states that passed something during the election cycle. And, and, and that may not seem like a big deal, but up until this point, by and large, most legalization frameworks have come as the result of uh, some sort of voter initiative. Um, and now I think uh, um, since most of those states have already that, that allow for that type of public policy um, process, um, the balance of those will have to get it all done through the legislature. So I think you'll start to see a trend going that way where the legislatures um, and, the, and the governor administrations are working together uh, to put a framework together for legalization. Very cool. Well, you heard it here for, first, folks, uh, straight from Lewis's mouth. Uh, we've got a lot to look forward to, not just with the five states that just uh, passed this past November, but also uh, from a federal uh, standpoint, uh, legalization standpoint, and from um, a new market growth as well. Um, Lewis, it has been such a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your insights, your knowledge. Um, this was This was great. Well, I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. And I look forward to the next time. Great. Thanks, Lewis. Of course. Thank you. Uh, well, everyone, this was the Canicurio podcast. I'm Amanda, joined by my lovely co-host, Ed. Uh, we just wrapped up a conversation with Lewis Kosky, COO of Metric. Uh, we'll have more conversations to come. So everyone, just stay tuned for more updates from the Dateable.